Yes. Do not stop swearing. I, I tell you every week, don't keep swearing like that. <laughs> okay. Now what we say is going to be held against. <laughs> okay. The story begins. Story begins. We continue chapter 36. Chapter 36, uh, page 401. This chapter is really the center of the existence of Chabad as we know it today. The fact that you can go anywhere in the world, practically, and you can get some Shabbos services and some kosher chicken soup and a warm Jewish smile is literally because of this chapter. This is literally the secret to the whole thing. You can barely go to any part of the world and not find Chabad. And if you don't find Chabad, they'll find you. And it's because of this chapter. This chapter has an insightful paradigm shift. The paradigm shift is the purpose of our existence centers around action, not around passion. Because passion is what we like to gain, and we could do a better job of that in heaven. Action is what God wants, and that's here. We're here to get passion. We're here to get what God, we're here to get action. We're here to do what God wants. We're here to make this world a home for him. The purpose of existence, what motivated God to create the world, he didn't have to create the world, he chose to. But he has a deep desire to dwell in the lowest of realms. You know, as we explained last week, that doesn't mean the lowest of realms geographically, um, but spiritually. A world that is so dark, a world where he seems so absent, he wants us to make him present. We left off saying, um, toward the top of 401 that the darkness is a darkness that's doubled and redoubled which means not only is it dark we don't even well we often don't even realize how dark it is not only do we not you know sometimes we're lost but sometimes we're so lost we don't even know how lost we are and we're here to illuminate the world that's a big task it, it's really incredible to just think about this because that means the fact that you exist means that god trusts you and believes that you're empowered to carry out this mission to illuminate not only a dark world a world that's so dark that people don't even realize how dark it is they don't even know About 200 years ago, the story takes place actually in the home of the author of the Tanya. Rabbi Schneer Zalman, the author, lived in a duplex. He lived upstairs. His son, Rabbi Dove Bear, lived downstairs. Rabbi Dove Bear is in his study or in his dining room, whatever it was, learning Torah. And he was super involved, very engaged to the point that, you know, sometimes you're so busy with something, you don't notice what's going on around you. His baby fell out of the crib. He was fine, wasn't, but was crying. He didn't notice. The father, Rabbi Dober, didn't notice. He was engrossed in his studies. Rabbi Schneer Zalman heard the crying from upstairs came down, cradled the baby, put him back to sleep. Everything was good. Rabbi Shneer Zalman then told his son, Rabbi Dovbear, it doesn't matter how engaged you are in Torah study. 
When a Jewish child is crying, you have to hear it. It can't go unnoticed. And this is essentially what this chapter is talking about. There's Jewish children crying, seeking for real purpose and meaning. And it's easy for it to go unnoticed and to say, I rather stay in Brooklyn where I'm more comfortable, right? I'd rather my soul be in heaven where it's more comfortable. It may be more comfortable, but that's not where it's needed. It's needed in this world, it's needed here. The Rebbe was once um, relaying this story at one of his talks and was saying that sometimes you have Jewish children crying and not in the literal sense. We don't mean literally children, we don't mean literally crying, but you have Jews crying out for more. But then you have the Jew who's so confused, he's not even crying for more. And that's who really needs it. That's the darkness and that's the redoubled, doubled and redoubled darkness that each and every one of us is here to address, is here to illuminate, is here to inspire with. This is literally why we exist. In Hayom Yom, we've quoted this Hayom Yom in an earlier lesson, I don't remember which one. But the soul has been waiting from day one of creation to be born, so it could finally carry out its mission. So it could finally carry out its purpose in illuminating the world. This is what we're here for. This is what it's all about. In the middle of page 401, the Altareb makes, the, the author makes the point that the purpose of existence must be earth, not heaven. And this is such an incredible paradigm shift in how we approach theology. Because it centers it not around us, but around God. If the purpose is around heaven, that's, a, that, that's focused on us. right? I want to get to heaven. That's essentially the entire Christianity. It's all about staying out of hell and going to heaven. Basically, in English, how is this going to benefit or hurt me? Right, it is a self oriented approach to Judaism. Now, it's not the same Judaism that we don't believe in reward and punishment. In Judaism, reward and punishment is the foundation of our faith, it's not the center of our faith. It is a found, it is an important belief in our faith, it's not the center. The center of our faith is not going to heaven. The center is actually bringing God down to earth. Let's take a look in the middle of 401. The middle of the page, bold paragraph under section two. Now, the dirah which is Hebrew for making a home for God in the lowest realm, idea, teaches that the ultimate purpose of the chain of spiritual worlds and their progressive downgrade from rung to rung is not for the sake of the upper worlds. The purpose of existence is not for heaven. It's not so you can get to heaven. But the purpose is this world itself. And the proof that the purpose is not heaven is the fact that heaven itself is a step down from God himself. So why would he create some sort of downgrade? Right? Why would, why would he... We're supposed to advance. Why would we downgrade? But the purpose really is this physical world. The purpose is not to actually leave the darkness of this world, but actually to illuminate the darkness of the world. They, they say a joke, and this is a joke, but every joke has some truth to it. They say, a Hasidic Jew. from Borough Park or Williamsburg, went to hell. He was sentenced to hell. 
you picture it, guy with a big black beard, long side curl, you know, the image, long black coat. He goes to hell and he's obviously uncomfortable there. He calls out to his rabbi, rabbi, take me out of here. The rabbi grabs him by his side curls, pulls him out, saves him. And then the Chabad rabbi gets sentenced to hell, right? And he turns to his, to the rabbi and says, get me out of here. The rabbi hands him a dollar and says, you should have much success on your mission. <laughs> it's just a joke, but every joke has some truth to it. Our goal, our purpose is not to run away from darkness, but it's actually to transform it. Let's take a look. That's like the ultimate mission. That's the ultimate mission. That's what it's all about. You transform hell. You got you got some talent there. Uh, oh, for sure. <laughs> Let's take a look on the top of 402. Um, rather, we are forced to conclude that counterintuitively, the purpose of all uh, of all the creation must be for the sake of this lowest physical world. Creation centers around our world, not around heaven. Heaven is just a step to get to this world, not the other way around. And the reason is, let's take a look at the next bold paragraph, since before any of the worlds were created, it arose in God's will that he would have a feeling of satisfaction, nachas. As Sammy Davis Jr. used to say, nachas baby, right? When his will would be obeyed down in this physical world. That's really the whole purpose. That's what it's all about. How do we do this? Next bold paragraph. For when God's will is obeyed in this world, it causes the sitra achra, the klipa, to be subdued. And the darkness to be transformed to light. When we do God's will in this world, we subdue, we suppress darkness, we transform it to light. So the non-Jewish approach, this is counterintuitive, would be go on a mountain, escape fast, <laughs> escape indulgence, escape physicality. And just be spiritual. Just connect emotionally, intellectually, meditate, right? But that's not the goal. <laughs> that's centering around how we feel. The goal is the Jewish approach would stay exactly where you are and transform your situation. Transform. Uh, and that's through engaging in Torah study, through engaging in the performance of mitzvahs, we actually um, we actually transform the darkness to light. So, okay, uh, ask a question, a question real quick. Yeah, please. Um, well, first of all, I think it's funny that Musi is crying in the background because of the whole story you just told. Um, I know, I was thinking. <laughs> <laughs> um, but my, my question is, I, I know we talked about this and, and I, I, I'm not remembering um, the detail of the response, but um, when you were just talking about um, heaven as being like a stepping stone down to earth, um, what I'm not re remembering is, okay, so at some point we pass on from, you know, our physical life here. And at that point, our nefesh returns to Hashem. Um, but is it that, I mean, that, that's where most people would say, okay, well, now heaven's going to come into play here, right? Because, yeah, right? But but um, aren't we being completely abs uh, absorbed into the wholeness of Hashem at that point that our soul returns to him? Or, no, we're still kind of like, we're going to hang out in heaven for a while now. Exactly. When Mashiach comes, and we'll talk about that at the end of this chapter, we'll experience the wholeness of Hashem. So I've also heard it, the Jews say that this world is just a waiting room 
on the way to heaven. So that seems to be the opposite of what this is saying. Excellent question. Excellent question. It says in Pirkei Avot, in the Mishnah, and Ethics of Our Fathers, that this world is the way to move to heaven. The word heaven has different contexts. Um, it actually doesn't say to heaven. It says the world to come. Um, so there's actually, and it's two separate things. There's heaven, where the soul basks in the light of God. And then there's the world to come, which has, there's, there's different interpretations as to what that means. Some say it refers to heaven. But others hold, and this is the route that Tanya takes, say that it actually refers to the time when Mashiach comes where God will review, reveal himself and his wholeness will be revealed in this world. Excellent question. It says in Pirkei Avot, the ethics of our fathers, one moment of teshuvah and good deeds in this world, a moment, a moment of good deeds, a moment of teshuvah, just a moment in this world surpasses the entire heaven experience. And the reason is because in heaven, at the end of the day, it's just an experience and we're limited. Our ability to experience is limited to ourselves. But when we're doing what God wants, when it's focused on him, not on us, there's no limit. There is no limit. And that's why he can be, a, that's why he can, reside there. Make sense? Essentially the purpose, you know, God wants to, you know, for us, it's more comfortable to go, it's more comfortable to go to heaven. <laughs> You know, look about, look at the, the spies that Moses sent to Israel. Are you familiar with that narrative in the Torah? The Jews are in the desert, making their journey after they received the Torah to Israel. And they want to send spies. Moses says, okay, we'll send spies. Moses sends 12 spies. 10 of them come back with negative reports. And they made a big mistake because the spies, their job was to report um, what the land was like, not to share their opinion on how they're going to get there uh, and, and whether we can get there or not. They were there to share facts, how we're going to get there, not should we get there. <laughs> they slipped. They started sharing their opinions. And they told the Jewish people, look, it's scary there. It's uncomfortable there. We should think twice about this. We shouldn't be doing this. Against the whole purpose of Judaism, getting to the land of Israel. <laughs> Big mistake. And the story continues that God was angry at the spies, angry at the Jewish people. Moses had to plead for forgiveness. God forgave. And that's why we, as a punishment or consequence, if you will, to rectify this, we wandered the desert for 40 years. If you analyze the story a little bit deeper, what were these spies really thinking? What were they trying to do? What were they trying to accomplish? The answer is, in the desert, they were spiritually comfortable. They had the clouds of glory taking care of them. They were being fed by the manna. They had the water from the well of Miriam. Every, all their needs were taken care of, and they were spiritually comfortable. They were able to bask in God's divine presence with the clouds of glory. They were able to sit and study Torah. They were able to sit in Brooklyn and go to synagogue every day and study Torah and be comfortable with all the kosher restaurants. They were fine. But once they get to Israel, that comfort is gone. The spiritual comfort is gone. And now they have to work the land. Now they have to become farmers. Now they have to work for a living. Why would we want that? <laughs> Why would we trade our comfort to go to a land of Israel where we're going to be uncomfortable and have to work? Now, that is the purpose. When they work the land, they will incorporate God's presence in that land. Right? And serve God in all that they do. So the purpose 
is the service of God in this world, not the comfort of him. They chose comfort over purpose. That's really what their mistake was. They were looking for comfort, for spiritual comfort. It was a holy experience, but they were looking for spiritual comfort, not purpose. And that's essential, essentially what we're doing here. Why we exist in bodies, not in heaven, is because God says, I don't, I, you know, you like being comfortable, but you have a purpose to be in this world. To be in Pleasanton and to illuminate it. To create an environment. And it's really, it's everybody's responsibility. The truth is, it's, you don't have to be a Chabad rabbi to illuminate the world. It's everybody's job. It's every Jew's job. I'll tell you a beautiful story. Maybe I said this in the past, but I'm going to say it again. It's about Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, former chief rabbi of Britain. Did I say this last week? I'll take I don't remember one point. about Robert, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs from last week. I'll have okay, to good. check the, the video. So Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, first of all, um, apparently he's ill. So he should have a, speedily, a speedy recovery. And um, the learning that we're doing tonight should be in his merit. He should have a speedy recovery. And we should wait, hear good wait, news. Wait, who, who's sick? Rabbi Jonathan Sachs. Yeah, it just came out in the news a couple of days ago. Hmm. They mentioned something in that on those OU calls this morning, and I hadn't caught who it was. I guess that's who they were talking about. So yeah, so he should have a refuah lema, a speedy recovery. Amen. To continue his work in illuminating the world. But Jonathan Sachs was a college student in Cambridge University. It was either Cambridge or Oxford, but I think it was Cambridge. Um, he was a traditional Jew, not by any means necessarily observant, but he was, you know, Jonathan Sachs is an intellectual, he's a philosopher, he has a PhD in philosophy in addition to being a rabbi, a doctor, and a lord. Um, I would love to be a lord, but I don't know, it's not in the cards. Um, <laughs> what does it take um, to be a lord? Is it just like I have no idea. <laughs> knighted by the queen or something like that? I thought lords were like exclusive to being. I don't know. <laughs> if you become a lord, does it mean in Hebrew you're called Adoshem? Auto, I don't know. I don't. <laughs> so Rabbi Jonathan Sachs was um, visiting the United States and he was on tour not as a rabbi, because he wasn't a rabbi, he was a college student, um, meeting various intellectuals and challenging them. And one of the local attractions was going to the Lubavitcher Rebbe. And he had a lot of different philosophical questions for the Rebbe that he wrote down. And, and, and when, he met, when, he go in, when he went in to meet the Rebbe, expecting to be able to ask him all his questions as he did with other rabbis and other dignitaries and other leaders. The Rebbe didn't want to hear of it. The Rebbe started asking him questions. And he was shocked. He didn't expect that. He was caught off guard. And the Rebbe asked him, what are you doing to service the Jewish people in Cambridge University? Jonathan Sachs had no intention of being in public service. And certainly not being in public service of the Jewish people. But he wasn't going, you know, he wanted to be respectful. So he started dancing around the question. He says, the situation in which I find myself, I'm, Rebbe cuts him off and says, no, we don't find ourselves in situations. We put ourselves in situations. What are you going to do to service the Jewish people in Cambridge University? <laughs> He was put in a very tight corner. And he developed a relationship with the Rebbe and eventually was inspired to become Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, not just Jonathan Sachs, and was encouraged to go for his rabbinic ordination to become a, a an influential leader, an inspirational leader. Because that's really what we're here for. That's really the ultimate purpose is what are we going to do to illuminate our corner of the world where we find ourselves? 
I, and, and I'll tell you, I'll be honest, this is something I struggle with because it's so much easier to say, I want to be comfortable. I want to go back to where there's all the kosher bakeries and kosher Chinese food. And I want to get out of the darkness and go to somewhere where it's a little bit more comfortable, more spiritually comfortable. And we'd like to go with you too, at least for a weekend. Yeah, exactly. Right. Go to 770 to experience the uplifting shot. This is, this is one of those, this is one of those double downed moments for us uh, Pleasantonians who have never lived that life. We just don't know how good, it, how good it can really be. You've been living the pleasant life, ton of pleasant. And, and, and that's why we're here. That's, that's what we're here. We're here to create that environment here. Because leaving to go to that environment will benefit me in terms of my comfortability. <laughs> and that's pretty much it. But bringing that environment here will benefit everybody in terms of comfortability, but also in terms of our purpose and being in this world. So it sounds like you're in full support of the, of the kosher food truck that Dave and I are going to get started. <laughs> Bottom line, yes. That's really what it's all about. The yes. kosher Chinese food truck? Yes. I'm totally down for that. I'm totally down for that. 100%. Now, in order, imagine a teacher who's going to be teaching a deep philosophical concept. A new concept it doesn't have to be philosophical, it could be mathematical or something, something new, something unfamiliar. And the teacher, instead of preparing, just says, you know what I'm going to do? I'd like to just share everything I know. What's going to happen to the student? Overwhelmed. Overwhelmed, right? It's not going to do anything for the, the student not only is not going to learn, but on the contrary, it's going to overwhelm the student. It's going to stress the student out and it's going to make, it's going to have the opposite desired effect. And that is the exact reason why God hides himself. God says, if I reveal myself in this world, it's going to overwhelm the world. There's not going to be any space for your existence. So he says, I'm going to have to summarize myself, condense myself. This is what Kabbalah refers to as Tzimtzum. God says, I need to hide myself and you need to bring me into the world. Let's take a look on page 403. It's the middle bold paragraph. It's a long paragraph, but it's an important paragraph. And when God's light does shine in this physical world which was previously dominated by sitra akhra by negativity by klipa by darkness it shines with more dignity and more power and with the advantage of light which comes from darkness which is superior to the way it illuminates in the upper world where it must shine through many filters and the hiding of god's face which hides or at least conceals the blessed infinite light in order that the individual identity in the upper world should not be eradicated, which would be the case of God's light shined unfiltered. So God, the light that we get without service of God, without serving, without that we don't bring on our own, if we don't initiate God's light, we just allow him to shine, we're getting a real watered-down version, a filtered version. Even in heaven, it's a, fil a filtered version. Otherwise, you can't experience it. And heaven is all about an experience. For sure, in our world, super filtered. So God says, you don't want the filtered light. You want me. You got to do a mitzvah. But how are we going to experience God's light in this world while simultaneously existing? How is that possible? There's a little bit of a... Uh, uh, how, how do we make that work? How do we get that balance? In other words, if God hides himself, we can exist. If God reveals himself, we can't exist. How are we supposed to bring him down into a world that's non-existent? It's like right? a, a paradox. world that's overwhelmed. 
It's a paradox, right? The answer is God hides himself and he gives us a tool in which we can get him, the essence of him, and still exist. Because truth is Judaism shouldn't overwhelm us. We should exist. It should be a meaningful existence, but we should exist. So is that to say then that um, with these tools, when we bring Hashem down to earth, um, we're only, we're, we're, we're getting Hashem's, um, uh, uh, we're getting Hashem's essence um, after the, after all of the tzimtzum uh, has, has happened. Um, and that, well, that's despite the tzimtzum. Um, okay. So, so, okay. Well, I guess that's kind of answering my question because um, we're, we're, we are going to get all of Hashem, but we won't be overwhelmed. Right. Okay. Right. Through the tools, and we'll discuss what this tool is in a moment, we will get God despite the symptom. And that, by the way, that's what a good teacher does. A good teacher will, instead of overwhelm the student with everything he happens to know on the subject, <laughs> will make a symptom, will condense, summarize, abbreviate everything. And then give the student the tools to figure it out on their own. So now the student can exist and still ultimately get the essence. Um, despite the tzimtzum, despite the, despite the, uh, despite the filter. Um, let's take a look on all the way in the bottom of 403. This is why the Blessed Holy One gave Israel top of four for the Torah. This is exactly why God gave us the Torah, which is referred to by scripture as strength and by the sages as power, since it gives us the power to withstand God's unfiltered revelation. How does the, so, so through Torah, we actually get God himself because when God gave us the Torah at Sinai, you know what he really gave us? He gave us himself. The analogy that's used for the Sinai experience is a wedding. That's the analogy the Talmud uses and the truth is King Solomon in his book, in his book, Shir Hashirim, Song of Songs in the Bible, refers to our relationship with God as a, a marriage. Think about this. God gave us the Torah at Sinai and he's referred to as a husband, not as a teacher. It's ironic. He's giving us information, but he's not a teacher, he's a husband. And the reason is because he's not actually giving us information. He's giving us himself. A husband and a teacher are both um, givers, but there's an important contrast. A teacher gives something that he has, what he knows, that's the information, but a husband gives who he is. And that's emotionally, that's um, physiologically as well, literally giving himself. Its essence. In intimacy, a husband and a wife connect to each other on a very essential level. That's why when, God forbid, a divorce happens, it's painful. It's not just like breaking a friendship. It's deeper than that. There was this essential bond that was formed where you gave yourself and it's been ripped apart, it's been ripped away. All that just to illustrate the emotion, the connection that exists in a marriage far deeper than what would exist in a teacher-student relationship. And when God gave us the Torah, he wasn't our teacher, he was our husband. And just as when a husband is intimate, physiologically he's giving himself, when God was intimate with us and gave us the Torah, 
he is physiologically or spiritually giving us himself in a very attainable way. You learn a random law in Torah, a random halakha, which doesn't seem divine, but it's divine will. And it's really him. You're getting his essence. You're getting him. Something powerful to ponder, to, to, to think about when next time we study uh, Torah, even if you're just studying the Parsha, you're just studying Talmud, or just studying some uh, uh, Jewish law, to realize that this is his will, it's him. We're being intimate with him because he's physiologically giving us himself. This empowers us to be able to actually perceive him. look on the bottom of 404 he brings three different verses to illustrate that that through Torah we actually get him as the verse states the last bold paragraph your divine teacher referring to God will be enrobed no more in other words he will no longer hide himself from you with a robe a filter with symptom and you will, and your eyes will see your teacher, like it says in Isaiah. And another verse states, for they shall see God eye to eye. And another verse states, and the sun will no more be your light by day, for God will be an everlasting light for you. Through Torah, we will ultimately be able to perceive God himself. It's that tool which God gives us that we can get him without any, without uh, him needing to filter himself right just like a good teacher gives students a tool to understand what the teacher really wants to teach the student to see without overwhelming the student that's what god's doing he's an expert teacher make sense we're on the boat here we're all here okay when will we actually experience this stuff in other words, right now, we believe it. <laughs> We're learning about it. So now you learn Torah, and the Tanya told you that you're actually getting the essence of God himself. But when will we actually experience it? The answer is on the top of 405. When Mashiach comes. Uh, 405, right under it, where it says section for the purpose of creation completed. And it's known from the Talmud, Tractate Sanhedrin, that the ultimate and complete purpose of the world's creation, the reason why it was created to begin with, it's the Messianic era, and especially the time when the, the, when the dead will be revived. The ultimate purpose of existence was to bring Mashiach, because that's what it all boils down to. Mashiach is all about bringing God's presence to this world. When Maimonides, Maimonides discusses the, the, the laws and the events of Mashiach in his halachic compendium, and he ends off saying that at that time there'll be world peace, we'll know no more war. And he ends off with a verse, a quote from Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, who has a lot of prophecies about Mashiach's coming. The world will be full of the knowledge of God. The world will know God, will be intimate with God. Because it will be revealed in this world. But we'll actually be able to perceive it. And that's because of the Torah. That's because of the tool that God gave us. Ultimately, the reason why we exist, the reason why you'll have a Chabad rabbi, no matter what part of the world you move to, is because we need to bring Mashiach. We need to bring God's presence to this world wherever we go, which is what Mashiach essentially is. The era of Mashiach essentially is. So un until Mashiach comes, um, our ability to 
experience this is 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 limited we we believe um but the 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 experience won't actually be fulfilled until Moshiach comes then. Right. Now, when you learn Tanya, just by learning this, right now you have a minute taste of this experience. That's why the Baal Shem Tov said, you know, the, the Baal Shem Tov documented a fascinating story. He documented this um, in a letter appended to his brother, where he visited, he had an, an a, a, a uh, out of outer worldly experience. You know, just just some background. The Baal Shem Tov, who founded the Hasidic movement, the Baal Shem Tov is not a normal person. Um, and if you've heard stories of the Baal Shem Tov, you know that you know that he is not normal. He's not the average Joe. It was a special soul that came in for a special purpose. <laughs> the Balshemto documents, it's funny because I've always heard this story as a kid, but reading it from the Balshemto himself and the script, the way he describes the details is just incredible. Balshemto initiated the Hasidic movement to revive the soul of Judaism so we could have a taste of this experience. Right? So we're not just behaviorally engaged, but we can have the soul and passion of Judaism as well. That's ultimately why we, we learn Hasidic wisdom, to inspire ourselves, to experience the soul, right? to bring soul to the, to the body and, and passion to the action. And the Baal Shem faced a lot of controversy with the Misnagdim, with people who opposed Hasidus, the Hasidic movement, so they meant well, and that's a whole discussion for itself. But the Baal Shem Tov had an uh, outer-worldly outer experience where he visited, his soul visited the heavens. And he describes in, in this letter penned to his brother how he visited uh, how he's advancing throughout the heavens, visiting, touring, if you will. How the different sages he visited and describing what the experience was like, what it felt like. And he ultimately met Mashiach, he says, face to face. And he tells Mashiach, and, and what's interesting about this story, I'm so curious, who was this Mashiach that he spoke to? Was he aware of who it was? Or was it just a soul? I don't know. It's just, but it's interesting. And he tells Mashiach, yo, buddy, when are you coming? <laughs> the entire world is waiting for you. When are you coming? And Mashiach's response to him is, when you spread your teachings, I'll come. What is the connection between the teachings of the Baal Shem Tov of Hasidus and Mashiach's coming? It's essentially a taste of the coming of Mashiach. It's essentially a taste of that era. A experience of the essence of God. And the truth is the world actually had a taste of this experience once before. There was one time in history where we actually experienced this as a whole. Right now we experience this on an individual level when we learn these teachings and we feel like we have an ounce, an idea of what's going on. But the world actually experienced this. That's when we received the Torah. Take a look on the bottom of 405. And also... A glimmer of this revelation already has been, already already took place at the giving of the Torah at Mount Sinai. As the verse states, you were shown a vision through the heavens to know that God is the only God. There is none besides him. We actually experienced this at Mount Sinai. But... 
it was just a temporary experience. There was two problems with the Sinai experience. Number one, and you'll soon see why there was two problems with this experience. Number one, it didn't last, right? And the proof is we're here in exile still. And the Jews were in exile. Right afterwards, they sinned with the golden calf. It wasn't that long after. So that's number one. Didn't last. Number two, what happened to the Jews when they had that experience? When God revealed himself to them? They were overwhelmed. They were overwhelmed. Right? They couldn't handle it. And their souls expired. God revived them. To which then Moses told uh, God, uh, the Jews told Moses, Moses, why don't you relay God's message to us instead of us uh, hearing it directly from God? And God, Moses, and the Jewish people unanimously agreed and said, that's probably a good idea. Um, So number one, it was overwhelming. Number two, it didn't last. Now, the fact that it didn't last is irrelevant because it was overwhelming. So there was no point in it in the first place. Not no point, but no, it wasn't functional. It almost seems like they're related though, right? Because if we had not been overwhelmed, then Hashem wouldn't have had to relay through Moses. um, And perhaps that could have continued that Hashem spoke directly to the Jewish people forever and ever. Right. So it seems like the two are related. Right. Definitely. Definitely. Now, why were they overwhelmed though? What's different about this situation as opposed to when God reveals himself when Mashiach comes where we won't be overwhelmed? What's the difference? Well, Over if I had here, to guess, I guess, you know, you know right, right now we're, we are here on earth um, experiencing, uh, well, through Tzintzunim, um which I don't think will be needed once Moshiach comes. Maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. Okay, good, good. But the, so the reason though why we were overwhelmed because God was like that teacher that just said everything he knows, just totally revealed himself. We weren't ready for it. So, why, words, will, it came, so why will we be ready for it now? Okay, good question. The reason why we'll be ready for it now is because it's coming from us. It's not coming from God. Oh, because our behavior is going to dictate when Mashiach comes. So we'll have exactly. we'll have perfected the pathway to be able to understand because we're doing all the things he wants us to do. Exactly. So it's coming from us, not from him. We're ready for it. We're, so ready. We'll be, we're creating so the experience. We'll finally have tipped the scales. Yes. I'll tell you, uh, uh, you know, one way to illustrate this, I'm, com- I'm counseling that couple, the couple that I was telling you about a little while ago. They're still on, thank God. Um, hopefully they're not listening. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> they, they don't even know about these classes. They're not Jewish. Um, I'm counseling this couple. And one thing... I noticed just a pattern that I've noticed. The more the husband tries to initiate in the relationship and over-engage in the relationship, the more the wife gets overwhelmed by him and and just wants to like, just shuts down, shuts down. What he needs to do is not Pose himself on her in the relationship, but inspire her to want to engage in the relationship. So it comes from her. And God is essentially doing the same thing. First, God was like that spouse that's so excited about us, but he overwhelmed us. Right? He overwhelmed us. We couldn't handle it. Now God says, okay, it has to come from you. I want you to want me. I want you, says God, but I need you to want me. And that's, <laughs> and I can't force you to want me because then you don't want me. You're going to have to want me. So God takes a step back. He hides. 
And he tells us how we can actually get him. That's through the Torah and mitzvahs. And now that we want him, now that we're initiating in the relationship, it's not overwhelming. And we're able to actually have a relationship with his essence, with him. Because we're going at our own pace, right? Because we're going at our own pace, yeah. Now, it's a balance because if it's too much our own, then then it becomes about us. (laughs) It's a balance. It's number one, it has to be coming from us initiated by us but number two it can't be centered around us because then it's not judaism anymore it's just our own feeling good so there's that tough balance but when we master that balance we've created a mashiach in our own personal world and that's going to spill out to the world at large and that's, that's what we call in, in, in Hasidic lingo. And the more you learn Hasidic literature, you will see this term and this concept all over the place. We call it Dira Betachtonim. Dira means a dwelling, Betachtonim, in the lowest of realms. For God, that's really what he wants. And part of him dwelling in the lowest of realms means, number one, that he's comfortable, not imposing himself. He's invited. And number two, he's invited by the Tachtonim, by the lower of realms. He concludes this chapter with something fascinating. When we experience this, this is an experience that isn't going to be exclusive to Jewish people, but to the world at large. If you look on page 408, because God is going to be able to dwell in this world comfortably, so now from the uh, second paragraph, second bold paragraph on 408, from the abundant revelation to Israel, Light will reach the darkness of the other nations too, not just the Jewish people. This is going to be an experience that everybody's going to have. So God is going to be such a part of this world that number one, it's not going to be overwhelming. Number two, it's going to be lasting. Number three, it's going to be unanimous of the, for, uh, and, and something the whole world will experience, not just the Jewish people. But it starts with us. It starts with us engaging in our relationship with God through Torah and mitzvahs. That brings God into our lives, that brings God into the world. It, it, tell, it tells God, you're invited. You're, I want you here comfortably. I don't want you to feel like you're imposing yourself. I want you to be here comfortably. Well, that's my story and I'm sticking to it. <laughs>